everyone. Great to see you. Thanks for being here today. If you're new, my name's Chuck, and it's a joy to spend some time in the Scriptures with you. If you would, please open up your Bibles to Mark chapter 14. If you don't have one underneath the seat in front of you, you should be able to find one. We're somewhere around page 496, I think. Um, Two quick things before we jump into Mark uh, by way of uh, just announcements or just some thoughts that I've been having. Um, First, um, I'd love if we say thanks to Josh Bond for a great message last week. Thank you, brother. Really helpful, um, at, at delightful job at helping us think about those first 11 verses of chapter 14. I was thinking this week, church, about uh, the fact that we just need to be careful that we never take for granted the enormous blessing God's given us in that uh, there are thousands and thousands and thousands of churches across the United States uh, that would find it incredible to have even one young adult who takes God and his word seriously and is preparing for a lifetime of service. And we're overflowing with them. And what a privilege that is that God's given us. So if you're older than that, thank you. And give yourself to helping these precious gifts God's given us. Um, And Josh, you're a great example of that. Thanks, brother. Um, Second thing is far less exciting, but still important. Um, in the bulletin you were given today, there was an insert, and that is a copy of our Constitution and Bylaws. So um, everybody who, this is your church um, guest, you can take a very quick 60-second nap, okay? Everybody else, um, you've already seen this document probably, and if you were in our last members meeting, uh, then you know that there are uh, two uh, proposed changes to our official founding documents as a church that... I spoke about in that elder meeting. We just wanted to mention it on Sunday morning in case there were people who couldn't be there, and just as a way of reminder to everybody else. Um, if you turn inside that first page to the table of contents, you'll see there are two things in red. Those are the two things that the elders are suggesting to you as members that we make adjustments to. The first thing is this, the uh, updated vision document. And A whole bunch of you helped write that, develop it, work on it over the last year or so. Thank you. Um, It's designed to more accurately reflect who we are today as a church. The second thing is under um, Article 2 of the bylaws, a a adjustment related to one of the ways people could become former members of the church. So if you've not yet reviewed those, I want to encourage you to. And if you've got any questions or concerns about those, any one of the elders would be glad to talk to you. In our December members meeting, we will be um, asking you to vote on those two recommendations. So between now and then, remind me, Tad, when is that meeting? December 4th. So between now and December 4th, if you've got questions or concerns about that, we'd love to talk with you. Now, put it down. Don't be looking at that junk during the sermon. All right? All right, so Mark uh, 14. We are, we are down now, brothers and sisters, into the final 24 hours of Jesus' life. It's crunch time, you might say. And fully under his control, all kinds of things are going to happen, we'll see in the next couple of weeks, leading up to the cross. 
We'll begin this morning starting in verse 12, and uh, I'm going to read a fairly long section, and then we'll go back and sort of walk through it uh, piece by piece, starting in verse 12. Would you follow along with me? On the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, he said to his disciples that he is Jesus, where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? He sent two of his disciples and said, go into the city. A man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Now, that sounds really weird to us. Like we live in the desert, everybody carries jars of water or we die. But culturally at this point in time, Men didn't carry jars of water. That, that was women's work. And so a guy carrying a jar of water would have been weird. It'd be like um, a guy today with a purse, <laughs> a man purse. All right? Okay. So go into the city, and you'll see a guy carrying a purse, and he'll meet you. Follow him, verse 14. And wherever he enters, say to the master of the house, the teacher says, Where's my guest room where I may eat the Passover with the disciples? He'll show you a large upper room furnished and ready. There, prepare for us. The disciples set out and went into the city, found it, and did just as he told them, and there prepared the Passover. And when it was evening, he came with the twelve, and as they were reclining at table and eating, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They began to be sorrowful and to say to him one after another, is it I? He said to them, it's one of the twelve who is dipping bread into the dish with me. For the Son of Man goes as is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better if that man had not been born. As they were eating, he took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to them and said, take, this is my body. And he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them and they all drank of it. He said to them, this is the blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly, I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives, and Jesus said to them, You'll all fall away. For it's written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter said to him, Even though they all fall away, I will not. Art, art, art. And Jesus said to him, Truly, I tell you this very night. Before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he said it emphatically, even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the same. For the ancient Jews, this Passover meal that lies in the background of this passage was a special annual meal that commemorated the seminal event up to this point in time in the nation of Israel's history. If you're familiar with this, then for the next couple of minutes as I describe it, would you pray for those in the room who are unfamiliar with it, who uh, haven't heard these stories, 
There's a whole bunch of you here, I'm sure. But for well over a thousand years before the days of Jesus, the Jews were enslaved in Egypt. And under Pharaoh's leadership, they had been subjugated into harsh slavery in which for years after year, I guess it'd be year after year after year, not years after years after years. Why do people not say that, by the way? That seems like that should work. Years after years after years. Why would that not work? Jill's, I heard Jill just say, move on, move on. <laughs> <coughs> Thanks for the suggestion, darling. I will do so. Um, for a long time, they had been in slavery, primarily out making bricks. And for all of these years, they cried out for God to rescue them. In his time, God raised up a deliverer. His name was Moses. And Moses' job was to go to Pharaoh and say to Pharaoh, let, let God's people go so that we can go out and worship him. Pharaoh said no. And so God unleashed a series of plagues in order to loosen Pharaoh's grip, his oppressive grip on the people of Israel, and to display to the world who he is as God. Eventually, God sent the tenth and final plague. This is one that was different than the others, because this one would befall everyone, every house in Egypt, Egyptians and Jews alike. On one fateful night, the firstborn son in every single household would die. Every household, that is, except for the ones where there was a substitute. One author frames it this way, the only way for your family to escape was to put your faith in God's sacrificial provision. The provision, of course, was a lamb. If this is stuff that just sounds absolutely crazy to you, you've never heard of it, you can read about it in the second book of the Bible. It's a book called Exodus. Find somebody and read it with them over the coming days and weeks. Next year, Lord willing, as a church, we're going to study that book together. But in Exodus 12 and 13, you'll find what I'm describing. God directed every household to kill a lamb. And oddly enough, to take some of its blood and smear it around the door of the, the public front door into the house as a, as a sign of confidence and trust and obedience to God. And then as that plague came that night, then it would pass over the homes that had the substitute blood on the door. That night, in every single household in the nation of Egypt, there would be either a dead lamb or a dead person. Those saved were saved solely on the basis of another, on the basis of the death of another. The next morning, Pharaoh released the Jews from slavery, and they left liberated ready to enter the wilderness to worship God. 
and make their way to the promised land. And so for, for roughly a thousand years, every year, certain day, certain month, the Jews would get together to remember, to think back on that major event that God had done. And in the providence of God, Jesus has come to Jerusalem at the very time of Passover. And so he's gathered here with his disciples to celebrate it. It, it was an evening in which there were many courses. And you, not students, not class courses, um, multiple waves of food coming. Jesus would take this, what we now call Lord's Supper or Communion. This is when it began. And so in this passage we've just read, you have both the final Passover meal and the very first of what we would call the Lord's Supper. Today, every true church commemorates the Lord's Supper in whatever degree of frequency they deem appropriate. But we recall not merely our rescue of out of physical slavery in Egypt, but something much deeper, our spiritual rescue out of bondage to sin. We partake as a church family, and in fact, uh, when we're finished with the sermon this morning, we'll do so together. But if you look carefully back over these verses, you'll notice that in Mark's version, in Mark's recounting of this event, he doesn't include the commandment that we would keep observing the Lord's Supper. Did you notice that as we read it? Mark doesn't include instructions for Christians to continue taking the Lord's Supper the way the other gospel writers do. There's no, do this in remembrance of me. Now, don't misunderstand. I'm not saying Mark didn't believe that. I'm sure he did. Why is it that in Mark 14, that so frequent and important command isn't there? Well, this is something, honestly, I didn't notice until this week, this past week, working on this message. And as I stared and stared and stared at the pages, thinking to myself, how could I not have seen that before? That sort of drove me to look at the passage with new eyes and see, well, if the commandment to repeat it isn't what Mark is really highlighting, what is he highlighting? I hope today that um, I, I, what I have come to see as the point of emphasis Mark makes will encourage you and will cause this taking of the supper to be a fresh new experience of the grace of God. Or maybe you all have already seen this and I'm just the slowest one to the party. What I'd love to do is just briefly walk back through each paragraph and consider what's happening in each and then at the end try to apply it to us as we go into the Lord's Supper. In the first paragraph, namely verses 12 through 16, we can just hit this very quickly. Because in those verses, what we have is essentially the introduction to what's to come. But one thing to notice, though, is the degree to which we're given small details and what those small details reveal. 
details like where the disciples were to meet for the Passover, how they would figure out where that was, and how they would get into that room to meet. Friends, what we're being shown here by way of example is that Jesus is in sovereign control of all things, even the things that would lead to his death. As he moves towards the cross, no one is going to take his life by force. It wasn't stolen from him. He willingly gave himself. And he oversaw everything that led to his death. That a God of infinite power would take that power and harness it in such a way that the very things that needed to happen in order to end up on a cross, that he used his power to do that, is absolutely stunning. That the God-man who knows all things and can do anything and is in control of everything, would orchestrate history in such a way that he would give himself. That is amazing. What a God we serve. Now with the supper prepared, then we're ready to move on to the next paragraph. And maybe if you will, as I'm walking you through the events, you just kind of let your eyes glance back over verse 17 and following in that paragraph. By the first century, as best we can tell from sources that exist, the Passover had become an elaborate ceremony. And if we look back to Exodus, there were really only three main ingredients that God commanded for this Passover meal. There was the bitter herbs that they were to eat. And those herbs represented or recalled to mind their time of bitter slavery in Egypt. Second, there was uh, the bread, a certain kind of bread, unleavened bread. So bread that didn't have time to rise. And that symbolized the, the haste with which they had to leave Egypt when Pharaoh finally said, okay, go. And then third, there was the the meat of the lamb itself. That blood that was smeared on the door was their means through which the substitute was applied to them. Those are the three essential ingredients, but certainly by the first century, if not several hundred years before, rabbis had included more and more symbols in the meal that they took. It was a whole evening affair. And so what Exodus 12 talks about, there's more happening, almost certainly, behind the scenes, behind even this paragraph, in the context of what Jesus would have done. Jewish rabbis had built an elaborate, multi-course meal infused with meaning. In an ancient document called the Mishnah, uh, it describes what they were to do. It's almost like a script. Now, I'm sure the majority of you got up this morning and with your coffee already have reviewed the Mishnah. But for the few that didn't, let me tell you a few of the details. I think you'll find them really fascinating. 
By Jesus' day, the meal was organized around four glasses of wine, and each represented something, and the other parts fit in between those glasses. One thing I found kind of amusing is at the end of the Mishnah, it says, now here's what you do if the people fell asleep in the meal. Like, maybe that has to do with having too much wine? Four glasses is kind of a lot. The other thing it says is kind of funny is there's a point in which a son was supposed to say to his father, hey, tell me why this night's different than every other night. <laughs> but, it, but it says, and I'll, I'll update the language just so it's easier to grasp for us. It says, essentially, if your son's a moron and doesn't understand, then say it for him. <laughs> Tell him what to say. It's hysterical. It's really, really funny. You don't find that as funny as I do. <laughs> I, have, I have two younger brothers, so a family of three boys. We were always kind of at each other. And I'm just imagining if my family had lived back then, what that moment would have been like. I definitely think dad would have had to say, hey, you morons, here's what you should be asking. <laughs> but the four glasses very likely came from the fourfold promise in Exodus 6 that God would, and and they represent four verbs, that God would, number one, bring them out of Egypt, number two, that God would deliver them from slavery, number three, that God would redeem them, and number four, that God would take them into a new relationship with Him. And so it was all kind of built around this. The first glass opened the festivities. The second glass, as it was poured, that's where one of the sons would say, yo, dad, what's up? Why is this night different than every other night? And then the father would recount the meaning of the meal. He'd give an elaborate answer walking through the significance of what they're going to do. The first half of verse 18 almost certainly takes us to that very moment. Now, as far as we know, there weren't any kids there. Perhaps there were, but we're not told that. And so Jesus, as host, acts as sort of father to the disciples, if you will. And when they are expecting, because they would have done this over and over and over in their past. This isn't the first time they've celebrated this meal. And they, as they're reclining at that table, are expecting Jesus to to commemorate the evening by telling them what it represents. And in that second glass, the one about delivering from slavery, Jesus instead says something very different, something no one saw coming. Truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. Imagine you're expecting, here's what God did in rescuing us out of slavery. In God's faithfulness. And what you hear is one of you is going to be unfaithful. Visualize the shock of that moment. And then as Jesus goes on to say, and and it's one of you who's eating with me. Which, how many were eating? 
all 12. And that's why the disciples react, well, is it, is it, is it, is it I? Me? And then comes the final blow. And this verse is pretty shocking. Woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he'd not been born. Now, you've probably had some pretty awkward Thanksgiving dinners. But I hope nothing like that. For those of you who are Seinfeld fans, that this makes the airing of grievances at Festivus look mild. I mean, this is intense stuff. On a night commemorating the faithfulness of God, Jesus says, one of you is going to be unfaithful. As the evening moves along and we move to the, second, the, the, the next paragraph, the third glass of wine was poured, reminding everyone of God's promise to redeem. Jesus had another surprise up his sleeve. Instead of taking that unleavened bread and breaking it and passing it and talking about how our ancestors, and the way they talked about it, they talked about it as though they were there. They, they said, when God delivered us out of Egypt, we had to leave in haste. The bread didn't even have time to rise. God rescued us out so quickly. He redeemed us. When they're expecting that they're about to hear that, instead of saying that, Jesus said some of the most important words he would ever say. They're down there in verse 22. It says, And as they were eating, he took bread, and after blessing it, he broke it and gave it to them. And said, take, this is my body. Now notice, there's no, there's no mention of the lamb here. In fact, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all four, as they describe this meal, none of them say they ate lamb. None of them include the main course. I'm sure they did. But why isn't, that, why isn't that there? Why does it describe the bread but not the meat? Well, it's because Jesus says, take, this is my body. Oh, friends, would you consider the gospel with me? Because it's bound up in those words. Our greatest need in life is not to be freed from our physical trials. Now, there are many, and there are painful, and across this church family, there are people that deal with tremendously difficult things in an ongoing way. And part of what it means to be a church is we do what we can to help each other bear up under the load of temporal suffering. It's not as though it doesn't matter, or it's not real, or it doesn't hurt or God doesn't care. And yet, 
The greatest human need is not to be delivered from a disease or from loneliness or from chronic poverty. The greatest human need is to be reconciled to God. It's to have our bondage to sin released that we might become slaves of righteousness. And so Jesus says, take this is my body because he's offering that. He's pointing towards the fact that in just a few hours he would be arrested, accused, mocked, beaten, humiliated, and then nailed to a cross where he would be the perfect lamb, offering himself as the substitute. Like the Jews in Egypt, brothers and sisters, we need a substitute. Not from the angel of death passing over the home, but from the wrath of God everyone deserves. Jesus was telling the disciples that is coming up very soon and it, it, it's me. And so this is my body. Because he was faithful to the covenant, because he had never sinned, Jesus could act as our stand-in, as our substitute. And there on that cross, Christian, remember, all your sin was put on Jesus. So much so that as he died, you died too. And your penalty was borne by him. And his right standing with God became yours. Oh, I pray those realities would never get boring to us. Jesus became that substitute sacrificial lamb. There's so much in those little words. This is my body. I'll just quickly, because there's confusion about this in some circles. When you hold up your phone and you've got a picture of yourself on there from 20 years ago, and you don't look like you do now. So I'm talking to the men. What's up with you women? You don't age. And, and somebody says, is that you? And you said, that's me. Obviously, you don't mean my body is physically bound up in that picture. It's a, it's, a, it's a snapshot. It's a representation of you. Jesus wasn't saying, you're about to literally gnaw on my finger. He broke the bread and he said, this is my body, meaning this represents me. And as you take it, you partake of grace. I do think in the Lord's Supper, there's a unique and powerful presence of God among the people of God. It's just not material. It's not physical. Which is good because the blood thing would be even worse. Verse 14 talks about that. Uh, Chapter 14, verse 23, look there. 
He says, and he took a cup. And when he had given thanks to them, they all drank of it. And he said to them, this is the blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. That very strange phrase, the blood of the covenant, occurs for the very first time in the Bible in Exodus chapter 24, where the Mosaic covenant, God had rescued the people out of Egypt and now they're being constituted as the people of God, told how to live in a marked out different way because of what he'd done for them. As that's being ratified, that very phrase is used. But from Exodus on, it's pretty clear that the people of God struggled to actually live faithfully up to that covenant. They disobeyed him over and over and over. And it became apparent this thing is only temporary. It's, it, it, it doesn't do the job well enough. And so a later prophet named Jeremiah promised that one day... An, a new covenant would come, a better covenant. Listen to what he says, Jeremiah 31. This will be a covenant not like the covenant that I made with their fathers. This is God speaking. On the day when I took them by the hand to bring them up out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant. So now he's talking about this new covenant that we today are all a part of, that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my, now listen to this carefully, I will put my law within them. I'll write it on their hearts. I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they'll all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will remember, I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. What a passage. In taking that cup, in breaking that bread, and taking that cup, Jesus is picking up that blood of the covenant language in that promised new and better covenant and saying, guys, it's here. I'm here. This is a covenant not of external words, but a covenant in which God changes our hearts and His people really know Him. And He forgives us. And He no longer ever holds our sin against us. Jesus is saying all of that, guys, the time is now. It's here. Now, if the meal had followed its normal course, then at this point, this is when the fourth cup of wine would come out. But notice there's no mention of that. In fact, Jesus says, I'm not taking that cup. Jesus says it, in fact, I won't drink again from the fruit of the vine until all this is done. Until when I come back in the future in the second coming. 
then we'll all drink it new in the kingdom of God. Now, fascinatingly, we'll see next week, quick preview, that Jesus, in skipping that fourth cup, I think there's a picture that's being set up in which we're told that he's going to drink another cup. Not the fourth cup commemorating the new relationship of God with his people. But this cup would be the cup of the wrath of God. The means through which we're welcomed into fellowship with God. The next paragraph then tells us they headed out and they sung a hymn as they went. That's what you'd do. You'd sing from Psalm 113 to 118. And the disciples made their way to the Mount of Olives. And now we've reached the last paragraph, verses 27 to 31. And here it becomes even more unthinkable. Jesus says to them, Not only will one of you betray me, but all of you will fall away. Can you imagine the roller coaster that night must have been? In all of it, though, Jesus is preparing the disciples for what's to come. Now, very famously, if you've spent much time in the Bible at all, you know Peter, on behalf of the disciples, stood up and pounded his chest. And he said, Not me. Not me. Even if I've got to die with you, I will do so. I will be faithful to the covenant, to the commitment I've made with you. But as we'll see next week, in just a moment, Jesus would be arrested. All the disciples would, in fact, flee. Now, I... I said early on in this message, Mark doesn't include that detail. That detail, you do this and keep doing this. And I kept asking Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, why is that? What, what is the deal? I think Mark didn't include it because he's highlighting something else. And it's something that's so powerfully gets us the significance, the extent of what Jesus did. He gives us this emphasis. In in the midst of covenant breakers, Jesus alone remains faithful. In the midst of covenant breakers, Jesus alone remains faithful. Mark brilliantly arranges the material to highlight the fact That Jesus is faithful to God and to his own. And in the very context of the betrayal and the denial of his disciples, he will do what they didn't do. He will remain faithful to the end. Now, why do I say that's the emphasis? Well, real quickly, if you've been with us as we've gone through Mark, remember... Josh even mentioned this last week, that 
A strategy Mark often uses is he takes a topic and then he moves to another topic and then he circles back around to the same or something very similar. We've called it a Mark sandwich. And the effect of that is the top bun and the bottom bun cause us to think very deeply and carefully about the meat in the middle. It frames it in such a way that we see it in new light. That's exactly what he does here. Top bun, the announcement of Judas's betrayal. Bottom bun, the incredibly sad reality that all 12 would fall away. They would not stand with Jesus at his most crucial hour. They would flee and deny him in fear, in the middle. Jesus saying, this is my body. I am making a new covenant, and I will be faithful to it. Those closest to Jesus, the ones who literally lived with him, weren't faithful. They denied God in the most egregious of ways. But Jesus is ever faithful. Beloved, what about us? All of us, without exception, have denied our Lord with our words and actions. I think the question we should ask this morning as we think about applying this text to our own lives is not, have I betrayed God? And is not, have I, have I fallen away in some sense? Have I neglected to keep the Lord at the center and stuck with him in something hard? Because the answer is we've all done that. That's just a freebie. I think a more important question, and it's what Mark is pressing us to ask, is is in what ways have we been unfaithful lately? Consider the central metaphor in both Old and New Testaments for the relationship between God and his people. Do you know it? It's a marriage. God is pictured as husband, and we, the people of God, the church, are pictured as bride and wife. And there's a whole bunch of passages in the Bible that describe sin as adultery, as unfaithfulness to the covenant. These disciples had made a relational commitment under God to Jesus. And just hours from his death, they slept around.
the scandal church of the gospel of Jesus Christ is that God loves people who even do that. And when we are unfaithful, even as his followers, he remains faithful to us. Isn't that incredible? This king, this husband, is in the process of making us pure and holy in such a way where we don't do that anymore. And oh, I'm looking forward to that day when I never, ever commit adultery against my God again. This morning as we take the Lord's Supper, I want to encourage you to do something in light of Mark 14. As you hold that bread and cup, would you look at it and would you ask God, God, how, in what ways have I been unfaithful lately? In what ways have I traded your perfect love for the love of another? In what ways have I committed spiritual adultery? And as things come to mind, confess them. But don't then stay there. Because what we see in the supper is that Jesus paid for those very sins. And so glance at your unfaithfulness to him. But then gaze at this Savior who gave himself that you would be freed from it. The body of Jesus was broken so yours won't be. The blood of Jesus was shed so yours doesn't have to be. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Amen? And as you do that, I want to encourage you to think about these words from Jeremiah. God declaring, I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sins no more. Even in the context of our betrayals and denials and unfaithfulnesses, he remains faithful to us. This is the extent of the love of God for you, Christian. If you're going to distribute elements, would you come and go ahead and start passing those out? If you're a follower of Jesus, you're a member of some church, we would encourage you to take that bread and cup, hold it, and do what I've just described in a moment of prayer between you and God. If you're not a follower of Jesus Christ, just let that pass because it wouldn't be meaningful to you. Instead, I want to encourage you to spend time reflecting on what we've said today and what we've sung and what you've heard prayed. And consider the reality that this gospel is offered to you now if you would but turn from sin and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Once everyone has the elements, I'll come back and lead us as we all observe together. Let's pray.